the world is at a pivotal moment. Geopolitical clashes have spawned an intense race for technology leadership. Industries are being reshaped. Globalization is being reimagined. I'm Andrew Schwartz. And I'm Kirti Gupta. We're here to break down how geopolitics and technology are impacting our economy, our security, and, and our, our daily, daily lives. This, this is, is Geotech Wars. Wars. Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Today, we have our very own Emily Benson, who is the Director of Project on Trade and Technology and Senior Fellow at CSIS, where she focuses on trade investment and tech issues. Prior to joining CSIS, Emily managed transatlantic legislative relationships at a European foundation, focusing on trade relations, emerging technologies such as artificial intelligence, and also worked on combating money laundering via illicit flow of art from conflict zones. Welcome, Emily. Thank you, Kirti, and thank you, Andrew, for hosting me today. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. And like, we haven't been on a podcast together in a long time, Emily, maybe since Trade Guys, or we'll have to get you on Truth of the Matter soon, but this is great. I know I've been missing your sports updates. Without being on podcasts with you, I have no idea what's going on. So, <laughs> For our listeners, Emily is one of the original OG Trade Guys as part of me, Scott, and Bill, and instrumental in standing up that podcast, hosting the podcast along with me. So it's so great to have you here with us. Well, great to be here. So today we're going to focus with you, Emily, on how the export controls and trade restrictions have been flowing in the context of the geotech wars we have been discussing in this podcast. We've been discussing a lot about the technological competition between US, China, and globally in key emerging technology areas, completely your domain, with semiconductors, chips at the tip of the spear. So this episode, we're going to jump into some of the recent export controls and how that relates to the broader story of de-risking, decoupling, and all these buzzwords we keep hearing about vis-a-vis US and Chinese economies. Yeah, great. Well, first of all, let me say to the listeners, get your think tank bingo cards out. There will be a lot of buzzwords in today's session. If you've been following the news recently, export controls have really moved to the forefront of foreign policy and national security. And when we hear about that, that's mostly in the context of semiconductors. What's going on very broadly is that the United States has made a determination that Items and technologies with U.S. inputs, even software design, are making their way to foreign adversaries who could ultimately use U.S.-made technology against the United States in a national security context. What that has meant is a broad de-risking strategy, reducing risk from supply chains, basically based on certain geopolitical assumptions, having a plan B. And then decoupling in some very high-tech sectors like advanced AI chips. What that means is that in October 7th, 2022, so about a year ago, the United States levied a fairly significant tranche of controls aimed at preventing the outflow of these items to China. What transpired in the ensuing year was uh, a series of revelations that maybe these controls were actually a little bit more porous 
Uh, transshipment dominated the headlines as well. If you look at countries like Kyrgyzstan or Armenia, they've shown very anomalous trade data. Suddenly, they're importing all these goods that contain ships and then exporting them in a way that they hadn't historically done. And so circumvention is one of the big problems that's led to this big update that we had last week. And so let me just go through very briefly what's in the big update. So it consists of three major rules. And I'll note here that two of them are interim final rules, meaning they'll be open for further discussion. The USG will go back and potentially make changes based on public comments, feedback from the private sector, feedback from allies. The third is closed. It's a done deal. So the first two, one deals with the types of chips that are covered. This deals with highly technical specifications of the chips. And what it essentially does is say, look, if you're exporting a chip beyond a certain threshold, that will be subject to a license and we will operate under a presumption of denial so we will not allow that export. If you design a chip that almost hits that threshold but doesn't quite meet the specific criteria, we'll still be able to make a determination about whether or not to facilitate that export. So this creates a lot of leeway for the government to actually enlarge the scope of the controls. The companies that are hit so far are mostly NVIDIA and Intel. And while the number of firms implicated is quite low, the dollar amounts will be in the multiple billion dollars that companies will no longer be able to obtain from engaging in the Chinese market. The second big rule update is on semiconductor manufacturing equipment. These are the things that are used in the actual production of these chips. And what's interesting here is that over the course of the last year, the United States engaged in very intensive discussions with both the Netherlands and Japan to get them on board with the U.S. policy. And in this recent update, the U.S. actually goes a little bit further, especially when it comes to controls on some of these Dutch-made goods. And so this is, again, an expansion that does adhere to the original rule. The third rule, the finalized kind of done deal one, is the addition of 13 Chinese firms to the entity list. This is kind of like the U.S. blacklist where every export to a firm on that list now requires a license. So if Andrew's company is on this blacklist and I'm trying to send Andrew a T-shirt, maybe a Grateful Dead T-shirt, that's subject to a license. And so it doesn't even have to be the high tech stuff. It really is a restrictive measure. And so altogether, my kind of TLDR on this big, complicated policy update is the goals are the same, the way of making sure that they're less porous and effective over time has vastly broadened. And we have a lot of questions about what this means over the long haul, both for our private sector and then for geostrategic engagement more broadly. Emily, I'm getting concerned that we might have to de-risk the Grateful Dead. Oh, my gosh. That's when you know the de-risking agendas have gone too far. (laughs) (laughs) But seriously, you mentioned a term, another term called circumvention. Explain a little bit more what that really means in this context. Circumvention is interesting. If you are a devoted fan of The Sopranos, like I am, uh, it's actually... Who is I know. If you're not, you really should be. I actually was talking to a friend last night who's never seen The Sopranos. And I was like, you got to go home. You got to click play right now. Most of the wisdom that you need in the world is contained in that show. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And it actually is helpful for understanding circumvention and trade restrictions. So if you think about a group of people who really want to do something that's illegal or that contravenes the rules, they can usually figure out a way to do it. So if you think of these ports in New Jersey, these large shipping containers, 
it's really hard to figure out what gets in there. So actually, one method of getting controlled chips out, I learned recently, is through diaper shipments. And so you have these babies' diapers that are stuffed with chips, and they're going out through these massive ports. It's really hard if you're an investigator to go check every package that's leaving. And it's very hard once it leaves U.S. soil to figure out what's going where through which circumstances, which shell companies or subsidiary firms are actually acquiring. And what the U.S. government has done in this latest update is mandate a license application for 44 countries, including China. So this is my allusion earlier to the Kyrgyzstans of the world that have shown these kind of odd data upticks and chip transfers. And they're saying, look, if you're sending something to Kyrgyzstan, we need a license now because we're trying to track what's going into Kyrgyzstan because it may be actually leaking to China over the long haul. But I think Part of the problem, and there's been a lot of blame on the the administration recently for, well, why isn't this working? China is still pulling ahead. There are a lot of reasons to unpack why that may or may not be the case. But at the end of the day, all of it goes back to enforcement because the rules are really only as effective as your ability to make sure that other entities are adhering to them. And I just want to underscore for listeners, you try tracking a chip all over the world. They're really tiny and there are a lot of uh, hands that they pass through on their way to the, the final destination. Kirti was telling me the other day, actually, that some chips pass through 43 countries, and these are the non-controlled ones before they get to the final end user. And so this is an extraordinarily complex web. But what the U.S. government is trying to do is trying to shore up all of these different pathways where China can overcome this major obstacle that the Americans have thrown into their high-tech ambitions. Jumping in quickly, Drew and Emily, This also comes on the heels of China's Huawei announcing a 7 nanometer 5G chip that was allegedly homemade and really led to the concern that maybe the export control restrictions that have been targeted towards leading edge, high end, 14 nanometer and below chips in the past haven't worked to block tech transfer to China. How likely is it that this new round is going to work? Well, let me just start off with kind of a truth about export controls. And one thing that really appeals to me about export controls is they're one of the few areas of foreign policy where they kind of have a math equation, where they have these rules that are generally true, and that makes them actually fairly concrete in terms of policymaking. It's actually measurable. It's actually measurable, and you can reasonably predict the outcome of one of your policy changes. The thing about export controls that can be frustrating is that the effects of controls are usually latent. So if you recall in February, March 2022, the United States and European Union levied this massive tranche of historic export controls on items to Russia. Russia's military is still up and functioning in the east of Ukraine in particular because the export controls haven't really had a bite yet. Where they are very effective is in delaying certain capabilities and making it much more expensive for foreign entities to achieve those capabilities. So a very good example of this is centrifuges in Iran. There was never any chance that we would prevent Iran entirely from getting centrifuges. However, what we could do in concert with close partners is make it a lot more expensive and take a lot longer for them to get centrifuges and in so doing, really decrease the number that they're able to have at the end of the day. 
And this is part of what the U.S. is trying to do with China. Where it's interesting is that even if China can produce these seven nanometer chips at scale efficiently, which I think they probably can, they're really maxing out their DUV machines. And this new set of controls controls those DUV machines. Those have a shelf life of about five years when they're not being maxed out constantly. And so there's a scenario in which they really, really push the capabilities of these machines. The machines have to be retired earlier and they can't easily get a replacement. What that means is they would have to figure out an entire domestic supply chain and mechanism of producing these alternative machines on their own. But in the meantime, all we are doing is buying time, right? Eventually, companies and countries find a way to catch up technologically. But in the meantime, there's also some retaliation that we are seeing. We just saw restrictions from China on export of graphite, which is a very important raw material for electronic vehicles and batteries and for which China has 65% of the global market share. How do we deal with that kind of retaliation? Retaliation brings up a very good point, which is the need to run faster. And the U.S. has done that with the $52 billion Chips and Science Act and a host of other policies. However, part of the running faster equation will be to really scale up production and our ability to process these critical inputs to our own supply chains. Graphite is not the only recent restriction. In response to the Japanese and the Dutch joining the U.S. over the summer, China also implemented new licensing requirements on gallium and germanium, which are two inputs into chip supply chains themselves. At the end of the day, it actually turned out that that was mostly a warning shot. Hey, be careful. Don't apply additional restrictions because we have this whole arsenal that we can weaponize in response to your foreign policies. At the time, a lot of the really big mining executives said, don't worry about this. We can scale up alternative processing and production tomorrow. It won't be too costly. We can get this done. But no one's actually doing that as far as I can tell. We don't have that traditional trade policy to anchor where we're getting stuff, at what prices, what domestic concessions foreign countries need to make in order to attract additional investment. And so I'm a little bit concerned that we have this escalation in international trade without really following through on our contingency planning. And this goes back to de-risking, which is just a really fancy and also very efficient way of saying a backup plan. We need a backup plan in case we lose our ability to get stuff from China. And that's actually going to be a lot trickier, I think, than even some of these super advanced controls that are extraordinarily complex. So, Emily, when it comes to a backup plan for things like graphite or gallium, is it possible that the United States can mine our own here in America? I think that in terms of graphite, Canada and Mexico are probably the best alternative sources. The other dirty secret, no pun intended, is that nobody really wants additional processing in their own backyard. I mean, you don't want this kind of production facility in your neighborhood where your kids are growing up, right? So finding out where to put this is actually quite challenging. And then going through the permitting to actually be able to stand it up. In the U.S., average permitting time for facilities like this is about 13 years. So if we need an emergency stash of graphite tomorrow, we're kind of in a pickle. And so we're going to have to pursue some policy changes to be able to scale up. Another interesting proposal that the director general of the WTO has recently floated is that we could figure out a way to do more processing at the site of extraction. 
So if you're a country like the Democratic Republic of Congo and you have a ton of the minerals that everyone's interested in, and you're also losing employment opportunities by allowing China to process it all, it probably does make sense at some level that you would want to keep that processing in your own country. But at the same time, that creates risks of its own. If you're looking at Indonesia, for example, they also have a lot of what countries want, but they've implemented their own export restrictions. And so you have to finally balance what concessions and incentives you're willing to give to these countries to make sure that even if you move processing, you'll still be able to get what's coming out of the ground. A big part of this is that the United States, exactly what you just said, doesn't want it in our own backyard. We've wanted other countries to do the dirty work for us and for us to be able to import it, correct? Yeah, there's that and also the labor costs. I mean, having people do it here would make the price of your consumer good probably skyrocket. And that's something that countries are also trying to avoid. Andrew and Emily, when it comes to retaliation, there's this angle of the raw materials. And then there's also the other angle of big semiconductor deals that we have seen, global deals, where China's SAMR, their antitrust authority, has to approve those deals. Now, the reason this is important is because the semiconductor industry needs to grow, as Emily, you were saying, you know, with the help of the CHIPS Act funding, with the help of public-private partnerships, but also with some vertical integration and with some conglomerate effects in this industry that enable more efficiency between two partners. So, for example, Intel tried to purchase Israel-based tower semiconductors, which had foundries in the United States, Italy, and Israel. But the Chinese SAMR antitrust authority did not approve the deal until the end. There's another big deal between Broadcom purchase of VMware for $60 billion that has been approved by several antitrust authorities around the world, but it is pending approval from China's SAMR. Actually, the deadline is coming up in three days. So by the time we air, we would know the answer. But right now, the market's really pricing the deal at 50% uncertainty, which is which, which is very high, right? So I guess all of this is to say that there is all this kind of retaliation that is coming that increases this additional cost from export controls, which are ultimately just buying us time to be able to continue to lead technologically. What are all the other things we should be doing to maintain our technological leadership as we buy this time in a very costly way? QT, I think the point that you bring up about retaliation is important. And I was actually having this conversation with some folks on the Hill this week about what to expect next. And it's kind of hard to predict because if you look at the last 12 months, it wasn't only gallium and germanium or graphite, right? We had this decision by China to kick Idaho-owned Micron out of their critical infrastructure that created a gap in the market where foreign firms could come in and basically cannibalize what used to be American business opportunities. They've also imprisoned business leaders from other foreign countries. The toolkit is very broad, and we have to be prepared for any set of eventualities that can significantly disrupt not only our high-tech sector, but also our climate tech, our medical sector. When the administration came into office in January 2021, they identified four areas where it's most urgent to really have this plan B. One was medical supply chains. The second was batteries. 
third was minerals, and the fourth was semiconductors. And they set about initiating this massive interagency review process. But again, a lot of this will come back on the private sector's ability to respond and make their own decisions about where any of this is really feasible to set up these alternative supply chains. Let's move on to Europe. Are European and other U.S. partners buying in to all this? That's my favorite question, Andrew. I'm glad that you asked it. I think what makes it so interesting is that I would have had a completely different answer a year ago or when the administration came in. It can tend to look like, oh, this is the U.S. again, weaponizing its massive economy. It's putting its own desires of foreign policy on its partners. It's creating all this bycatch in the process. I think that can be true on some policies, especially the de-swifting saga about Iran from a few years ago. That can be true in certain instances. However, what we see now is significant allied buy-in to this new era of technology-driven economic security. This all goes back to really difficult lessons learned from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where especially Germany has had to contend with far greater exposure to energy market disruptions because they thought more trade equals more peaceful and stable relations over the long run. Russia has really violated something that I think all of us thought to be an absolute truth, that interdependence was good. The United States repeatedly warned Germany about the perils of Nord Stream 2, about failure to diversify. And they're essentially doing the same thing with China, saying, look, if you have over-reliance, it could be weaponized. And it's time that everyone start thinking about plan Bs. And the European Union has responded. In June, they put out their own economic security strategy. Germany has a dedicated strategy on China that came out in July. Japan, as we speak, is working on a huge revitalization of their economic security strategy. And what this all says is the ultimate recognition that things as usual need to change. We're going about retooling the entire set of rules that have governed our global economy for the past several decades. Where that leads is unclear. And I think some of the inter-ally friction right now is on which institutions we should work through, if any, if we need new institutions, and then which countries should be the ones calling the shot on what the rules look like. And that's really where we're in a gray zone right now. But I think at the end of the day, we can all recognize that we have the same sort of end goal at the end of the day, which is making our own economies safer and more reliable while still prospering. So these policies are not new to people who really follow them. But for people who are looking at it on the outside, this is a new foreign policy kind of paradigm for the United States and its people to really get used to, isn't it? Oh, totally. I mean, this is why when you're in college or grad school and you're like, oh, I love IR. This is exactly like this is the moment we've all been waiting for, right? We are living through history. And I think there were a lot of questions, again, in the past year about whether or not there was a clear Biden administration doctrine, whether or not some of these seemingly fractured policies added up to a greater whole. And Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, gave a speech at Brookings in April, which essentially said, yeah, the blob is correct. We are actually pursuing a new agenda. He actually wrote again in Foreign Affairs this last week, I think two days ago, a further articulation of that strategy. Whether or not you agree with the fundamentals of it, it really is a seismic shift in the way that we are thinking about global interdependence. 
And what's even more interesting is, again, that some of our very critical allies, not only in the European Union, but also in East Asia, are moving in lockstep with us, particularly through the G7 framework. And so I'm very curious to see what unfolds not only in the remainder of this administration, but also by 2030, we could have a completely different set of institutional framework. What's the core thing that people should take away from this strategy? Yeah, so it's a really big question. The seed kind of got planted when I I came across this idea recently where someone was writing that during the Cold War, we basically had no trade with the USSR. And we actually didn't end up getting into many concrete conflicts with them. It never became a full-on hot war because we had so many less touch points for friction. Having a very interdependent trading relationship with China necessarily creates more friction. We have Section 301 tariffs on inbound items from them. The European Union is investigating EV overcapacity in the European marketplace. And so just by virtue of a high level of interdependence, it's kind of natural that you would disagree. It's like the more often you hang out with a set of friends, the more often you'll disagree about some stuff. That's totally normal. What's different in today's context is how we actually manage that different of a relationship when both of these massive historic powers are trying to coexist in this interdependent global economy. And so the point of the doctrine is to say, How do we prevent leakage of our really high-grade technology to China while permitting the vast majority of consumer-facing trade, but having a contingency plan whereby we can still keep our own engine up and functioning? And Andrew, I would just also like to add that from the industry perspective, a lot of industries have been raising the alarm bells about loss of market access to China, because Emily, your point is there's such high volume of trade between the two nations as opposed to what we saw in the Cold War between the US and USSR. But in addition to that, China is not only a really large end market, but a really big pass-through market to the rest of the world. And for the US companies, which are primarily incentivized by markets, by shareholders and stock markets incentives, they need to be able to have access to large markets to fund their R&D programs. As we go down this agenda, it's so critical that whatever we are taking away <laughs> in terms of market access and R&D funds, which are you know primarily coming from the private sector these days, to replenish those somehow with these alternative sources and the Chips and Science Act is really only a small beginning. Yeah, the point about markets and where you can sell your items is a very good one. If you are Intel or NVIDIA and you're producing chips that go into consumer goods like gaming consoles, you can probably figure out where to sell them. Vietnam comes to mind, South Korea. There is kind of a market demand for those, especially with the proliferation of chat GPT and these huge LLMs that require really advanced chips, that's one part of the package. However, if you are a Dutch machine tool company like ASML and a single one of your machines costs $150 million and is basically the size of a football field, who wants to buy that? 
And part of the problem here is that the United States policy right now is not to let just any country have that technology. And so if we see a foreign entity who poses a national security threat, we do not want ASML selling this massive tool to that country. And so it's not like it's very easy to just find somewhere else, pick up and move. Peter Wenning, the ASML CEO, has said last year, don't worry about it. We have a huge backlog. We'll find alternative buyers. I'm not convinced it's that easy. And so I think that the effects of these controls will actually be quite different on different parts of the supply chain. I have to say that all this talk about having different blocks makes me nervous as an economist because we live in such a globally interdependent economy that even if we do this kind of de-risking and to your point, Emily, create the wedge between different markets, there will have to be a lot more back and forth. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point, and that's one that's come up in this actually not-so-easy-to-answer question recently about, is globalization as we know it coming to an end? And it's easy to say, yeah, of course it is. We're going to have less trade. Things are different. We're going through this big, substantial splinterization. But if you actually look at recent WTO trade data, it shows that there is not a decrease in trade overall. It's just that trade looks, feels, and functions quite differently. And what it demonstrates is that we're moving into these little clusters around the global economy that are actually still producing growth and overall trade of goods and services. And this underscores something I think I was alluding to earlier, which is it is completely new territory, but it may not actually be bad. It might just be a more effective way at peacefully managing high-tech interdependence. Yeah, definitely we are living in a world which is changing. We are reimagining globalization. Clusters are forming. Different industries are changing. And I think these topics that we discussed today and the semiconductor industry really remain at the tip of the spear to understand these mega trends that we are living through right now. Absolutely. Emily, thank you so much for being here with us today. Great discussion as always with both of you, and we'll be back next time. Great. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Emily. Thank you for tuning into Geotech Wars. You can listen to more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time.